Welcome to Horse Mysteries, the podcast about horses and mysteries. My name is David Dedrick. And my name is Lisa Williams. And this week we have another mystery, another exciting mystery, I hope. Uh, what's this one called? Well, I called this one Sleep Like a Horse. But before we go on to that one, okay. I just want to go back to... Oh, uh, we have an update? An update, yeah. We have an update on the last one. It is. One. And it was one that pleasantly surprised me, I guess. Okay. So I think I talked before about Fan for Lush and what a good racehorse she was. Yes. And I had also mentioned that my parents had racehorses. Okay. And the reason my parents had racehorses because my dad's uncle had had racehorses as well. And so we got into it because of him. Okay. And his best racehorse was a horse called Earl's Jr., who is a multiple stakes-winning racehorse. Mm -hmm. Any relation to Carl's Jr.? No, not at all. He was actually so good that he was probably one of the top, if not the top, racehorse in this area. And so there was going to be a big race in Manitoba, which sounds kind of weird, but the Queen... And all her family were coming out to it. It was called the Manitoba Derby. It was this big, big thing. And so they decided to fly Earls Jr. out to Manitoba for this race. Yes. And I was very, very young at that time. I did not get to go to Manitoba. I remember my dad had to actually make the shipping container for him to fly in the airplane because the plane didn't even have it. Okay. Um. So, yeah, it was all kind of very exciting, but again, I was very young. I just remember bits and pieces of it. I remember he didn't win. I think he maybe came in fifth. And I was looking up something about Fan for Lush recently, well, just a couple days ago, and it turns out she was the horse that won. Oh, wow. Yeah, and not only that, she was the only filly in the field, Mm -hmm. and it was the first time a female horse had won that race uh, in the history of the race. So, yeah, she was a great horse. In the storied history of the Manitoba Derby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everyone in, Ca- in Canada, so just so people know, this is like a big day. The Manitoba Derby, people wear their hats out for it. And- well, they, yeah, they did wear their hats. And um, I remember another, like, little aside. Our trainer was an Irish gentleman. I will use that term loosely. Um, and there was a big to-do <laughs> simply Irish because, um, yeah, he refused to wear a tie okay. when he went to meet the Queen. Um, and yeah, it almost got to the point where he was going to get fired because he was refused. Everyone had to wear yeah, yeah. a tie. Everyone had to dress up and he was just not going to dress up for that lady. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. It got a bit heated. <laughs> anyway. So our story this week though. What is the story called again? I named it sleep like a horse. Okay. Which means standing up. Yeah. Well, yeah. Sleep standing up. So yeah, horses do sleep. A different sort of way than humans do, obviously. So they yeah. sleep standing up, which is like a dozing sleep. Mm-hmm. They do have to lie down to sleep. And to so, have like yeah. a deep REM sleep. Mm-hmm. They yeah. have to have headphones on and listen to. <laughs> no, they uh, have to sleep lay, uh, sleep laying down. But So because they're uh, a prey animal and they have to like be ready to f- fly away, at, you know, run away at the, the, the least sound. Do they have to be in like a really comfortable place for them to want to lay down? Uh, or well, do they do it in shifts? They do it in shifts, yeah. Okay. So typically if you see a group of horses, certainly in the wild, but even in a domestic situation, mm-hmm. all the horses will lay down and one stands up. And okay. So that's kind of the sentry. And he might sure. be dozing, but yeah. at the same time, that's the one that's supposed to be you mm-hmm. know, telling the others that danger is coming. Designated dozer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
what we'll start with is the scene of the crime. Dun dun dun. No one saw the significant look she gave me that made, prompted me to go dum dum dum. <laughs> All right. Okay, so the date is uh, February 20th, 2002. Nothing really significant about that. No. No. The location is in California. So a It's town- a year after men discovered a monolith on the moon. So, town of Linden, California. Okay. So, in the Lodi area. Mm. And so, what ended up happening was some employees at a local vineyard saw a leg sticking up out of a shallow grave. Mm. And so, the sheriff department obviously was called. Yep. And doing a little bit of digging, literally, yeah. they find a whole body buried in the ditch. Okay. So, that is the start of our story. <laughs> goes to be autopsied and they find out that the victim is a middle-aged white male and they're able to fairly quickly identify him as a man called Larry McNabney. Okay. So Larry McNabney is 52 years old. He's a lawyer based in Sacramento. He had been reported missing about three months earlier. So it was November 30th, 2001. He was first reported missing and then he was reported missing a little later by a second party. So they do an autopsy and they find out that he's died from an overdose of something called xylazine, which is also known as rompin. Okay. So rompin, have you heard of that? <laughs> nope. No. Okay. So it is a, a drug that people will use. It's a drug of abuse. They cut heroin with it. Okay. Um, but it's also used in the horse world. So its primary use is in the veterinary field. Uh, it's used... As a horse tranquilizer. I see. Yeah. Um, and sedative. We actually had to use it once on a horse. So I've seen this in action. It's very unique in that it, it sort of, I won't say paralyzes, but puts the front end of the horse to sleep. They'll be standing up. Yeah. So if you have to do yeah, any kind of minor procedure, not surgical, I would guess, but for our case, uh, it was a horse. We had to treat its ears with some medication, oh. and it wasn't wanting its ears treated. And so our resource trainer came, and he gave this horse rompin. And I remember him saying, just stay away from the back end. Because okay. the front end completely falls asleep. So the horse was standing with its front legs really wide. Its head just dropped way down. Its ears were off to the side. Its eyes were half closed. You know, it was literally standing asleep. But they said what it doesn't lose is the ability to kick. Okay. And so the front end is completely asleep, but the back end is still potentially very lethal. The back end is still romping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, or is uh, it romping? Rompun. So it's R-O-M-P-U-N. Okay. Oh. No. None of my jokes work. There. No, not at all. It is used as a muscle relaxant. It's also got another use for treating tetanus. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's So also- in that case, that's weird because if you're ca- causing paralysis in the front end of the body, how are you preventing tetanus from causing paralysis throughout the body? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Sorry to be... Yeah, it's okay. Ain't no vet. Anyway, so rompin is used uh, in, in conjunction with ketamine, special K. There's another yeah. drug that people abuse as an anesthetic. So if a person overdoses on rompin, usually it's fatal. So they, there's no coming back from that. Uh-huh. They also found a second horse uh, sedative, which is called acepromazine or Atravet in the guy's system as well. Hmm. And so as I drive around in my vehicle, I have a 
container of Atrovet in the back of my car. Why? I don't know. I had it in the trailer in case we needed it for trailering, but yeah, uh, I don't use it. Anyways, I have it. All right. So basically the police go back and they're able to find out that the last time Larry McNabney was seen alive was at a horse show in a town called Industry, California, very okay. close to Los Angeles. Um, it was a quarter horse show. And the date that he was last seen alive was September 11th, 2001. Why are you looking at me? September 11th, 2001. Oh, okay. Any significance to that date? Um, that's when they discovered the monolith on the moon? <laughs> Nine one one. Oh, so that's the last day. So I don't know. It's on the wrong side of the country to yeah. disappear. To be disappeared because of that. But yeah, that's why no one noticed. Okay, so police are kind of worried because yeah, they also know because of the missing persons report that he's married. Um, they are initially fearful that they will find his uh, Larry McNabney's wife somewhere in the location as well. Okay, they search the area but yeah they find that he was the only body concealed in the area hmm. he gave them a leg up mm -hmm. so the police continue investigating and they find out that um larry mcnabney is you know what has been described as a rising star in the horse show world um and hmm. on the day before he was last seen alive he made what was called an uncharacteristic mistake oh, okay. while he was showing in a halter class you know what a halter class is no, is it anything to do with halter tops? No, nothing to do right. with halter tops. So, yeah, halter class is just a class where you lead a horse around. You're not riding it. Mm. Um, and the horse is being judged on its confirmation. Yeah. Which sounds like a pretty easy thing. But sure. as with anything to do with horses, there's sort of um, a pattern and procedure mm -hmm. that you have to do. Mm -hmm. And you have to stand a particular way and show the horse a particular way. So... While wearing our halter top. Uh -huh. But it seems to me that that's pretty low-level competition. I mean, some people make a career out of it. Really? Yeah, okay. Yeah, There's There are people that are very much into it, and that's all they do. They uh -huh. specialize in that. Okay. But, yeah, it it's not really... If you're performance-based, like I am with horses, then, yeah, it, it's not an area of interest for mm -hmm. me. But, yeah, some people, that's all they're about. And they're very good at it. So, all and, right. yeah. Anyway... So, yeah, after the show where he made this mistake, mm -hmm. he later complained that he wasn't feeling well and um, went back to the hotel and went to bed early. So this would have been a big horse show where you don't just haul in for the day and then go home. They would be you know, staying in a hotel, etc. So mm -hmm. it's there for an extended period of time. So as we said, the last day he was seen alive was September 11th. And at that time, he was being pushed in a wheelchair his wife was the one. His wife's name was Alyssa. And so he had collapsed at one point mm -hmm. in that morning. And people had rushed to help. And she basically shooed all the people away and said he was fine. And so then she was pushing him past some vendors. Uh, so they were the people that reported to have seen him being pushed in a wheelchair by his wife. Um, he did have a history of alcoholism. And so they thought perhaps because he was a rising star in the in the horse show world, he was trying to minimize this, or it could have been to do with his professional life. They didn't want people to know that this lawyer was an alcoholic, whatever. So people surmised that, you know, she was just trying to minimize the situation just because he possibly was drunk. Hmm. Uh, 
And yeah, people said he had risen and fallen many times in his professional life because of alcoholism. So further investigation into the background of Larry McNabney. So the victim, Larry McNabney, uh, he was described as a colorful character. So he first started as a lawyer in Nevada and he was a defense lawyer. He advertised on TV and he had advertisements where he was riding a horse out in the desert. Um, and so people kind of nicknamed him the Marlboro Man. And he was considered a courtroom star. He was the defense attorney in two of Nevada's most prominent cases. One was a 1982 bombing and extortion at Harvey's Casino. And the other was a 13-month drug conspiracy trial in 1989 and after that he quit practicing law for three years so oh. i think that had to do with his maybe alcoholism i see he also they found out had a history of relationship issues and Alyssa was his fifth wife wow yeah so he's only 52 and he's through gone through while well, he's on wife number five mm. and two of his previous wives had taken out restraining orders against him wow yes so he had also recently relocated his practice from Nevada to Sacramento, and there he was specializing in personal injury cases, and he was doing very well financially. So he and his wife, Alyssa, who he had married not that long previously, basically were spending their time between horse shows, wineries, and shopping. So he was making a lot of money, and hmm. they were spending a lot of money. Okay. Okay, so... Police then decide to take a look at his wife, Alyssa McNabney, because at one point when his body was discovered, when um, Larry's body was discovered, they go to the house, but they aren't able to speak to her. She's off on a horse show in Arizona for three weeks. So okay. they're like, okay, we better look into this woman. So what they find out is that in 1995, Alyssa Redl at that time, she was 29. She had just walked into McNabney's law office and demanded a job. Okay. So she had seen his ads on TV. Yeah. Um, she walks in, says she wants a job. He was so taken by her. He not only gave her a job, but asked her out on a date. And they went out for lunch that day. Huh. It didn't take very long before he had her working, not just in the office, but as office manager. And so she was kind of running the whole show. And in addition to that, she was helping settle large cases. So six months after she was hired, they ended up, the law firm got audited. And the, there was a, an investigation with the Nevada Bar Association. If They found out that Alyssa had actually, within the six months that she had been working there, embezzled the law firm or actually the law firm's clients of $140,000. Wow. Yes. So there was trust funds that she had been taking money from um, and other clients' accounts. So McNabney was made to pay the money back to the clients because it was an employee of his. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, he chose to be very happy to overlook the fact that Alyssa was the one that had done that. <laughs> okay. um, he lost his license to yeah. practice in Nevada as well. Wow. Uh, which is what caused them to move to Sacramento and restart his practice. Um, but he took Alyssa with him and they got married. That might have been mistake number one. <laughs> well, mistake number five. Yes. Uh, so early that next year, 1996, uh, McNabney's daughters from a previous marriage reported that uh, Alyssa was basically doing her best to prevent her 
new husband from having contact with his children. So mm-hmm. not unusual sometimes, but uh, yet another red flag. Yeah. A wicked stepmother. Yeah. Okay. So then we have a third person coming into this, which is at the law firm. Um, there's a young lady who is a university student. Okay. So she's an honor role university student. She was a past high school president class president and her name is Sarah Dutra so she's hired just to do some part-time work but in a very very short time she and Alyssa become very very close friends very fast friends to the point that they're spending all their leisure time together they're going shopping together they even get their hair cut to look the same Hmm. so yeah they also developed an interest in horse racing and spend a lot of time at the racetrack So, due to the connection with horse drugs, the police investigate further into the horse show world, talk to people who they competed against and people at their barns, trainers, etc. They learn that at an earlier horse show in Susanville, California, Alyssa had asked another horse trainer that she knew, um, and he's also a friend, Evan Reese, she said, can you kill with horse tranquilizers? And his response was, a horse? And she's like, no, a person. <laughs> so, yeah, that was uh, first first red flag in the horseshoe world there. Wait, the very first one? Well, in the horseshoe world. Outside in the family, there is, yeah. Oh, already. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I see, yeah. I see what you're saying. These are red flags within this. Yeah. Okay. Got, gotcha. So, yeah, it's a different community here. Okay. Okay, and then the couple's uh, trainer, who is a person called Debbie Kale, who they also, you know, socialized with, was, you know, mm-hmm. Debbie thought of them as friends. Yeah. Um, did she have her hair cut like the other two? I don't think she did, okay. no. Uh, so she said that Alyssa told her um, that she would get Larry to drink so much that she could party without him. Um, she also bragged that she had doctored his wine with Vicodin. So, okay. yeah, she's experimenting with different drugs. Yeah, um, on someone else. <laughs> yeah. So then, arriving at the uh, morning of September 10th, 2001, <laughs> what they find out is that Alyssa had prepared a drink for McNabney, and this time she mixed horse tranquilizers in it. <laughs> so he drank the horse tranquilizers. Later on, he collapsed. They returned to the hotel room, and then she injected him at that time with more horse tranquilizers. How did they discover this? Uh, she confessed oh, later. She so confessed. this is all from her confession. Okay. So on September 11th, 2001, I mean, some of it was through them interviewing people, but some of it came out of, in the confession. Mm-hmm. So on September 11th, 2001, which was the last day he had been reported to have seen, been seen alive. So Alyssa was observed by the vendors pushing him through the showgrounds in a wheelchair. And then later, the friend of theirs, uh, Kale saw them driving away in his truck and it appeared that he was in the back seat and the two women were in the front seat they also she also saw two new shovels bags of dirty clothes and the wheelchair in the truck bed Hmm. so just before she left the wife Alyssa told the trainer that her husband had gone off to join a cult because of the September 11th bombing. So okay. he was very upset. And he was yeah. going off to join a cult. Which is what you do, I guess. Yeah. yeah. That's what I do and I'm upset. <laughs> so, How again, often have you had to hire someone to come and deprogram me? <laughs> yeah. 
So later, uh, again, through the confession, the police learned that um, Sarah and Alyssa had driven out to Yosemite National Park with McNabney in the back seat. Alyssa orders Sarah to dig a grave, which she does. Then they find out that McNabney's still alive, so they decide not to bury him. They load him back in the truck, and they drive back to Sacramento with him unconscious in the back seat. Once they're back in Sacramento, then she continued to inject him with tranquilizers and administer tranquilizers orally, and so he died the next day on September 12th. Mm. So I assume that tranquilizers slow the body uh, yeah, they probably slow the heartbeat down, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. until eventually you yeah, expire. So at one point, they also drove out to Vegas with the body in the truck with the intention of burying him, but ultimately decided against that. They returned home, and what they did do with the body is put him in a spare fridge in the garage. Okay. And then they taped it up with duct tape. Yeah. Didn't want him to get out. No. So then, in the meantime, Alyssa returns to work. And continues running the law firm. Uh, She takes on new clients. She even hires two new employees. One is a lady called Ginger Miller. And the other is a girl called Haley Jordan, who is 17 years old. It turns out Haley Jordan is Alyssa's 17-year-old daughter. Okay. No one knew Alyssa had a kid. Just all of a sudden, this kid shows up. She's working at the firm. People are like, ooh, what? How did this happen? (laughs) Um, So... Haley worked there for a few months, and then Alyssa sends her off to Maine. Hmm. Alyssa explains McNabney's absence in lots of different ways to the people that work there and to his clients. Um, Alternately, she says he's in rehab. Uh, She says he's moved to Costa Rica and is going to divorce her, or he's living in a religious cult in Spokane, Washington. Hmm. So in, while this is all going on, she's also busy cleaning out their bank accounts. So both the business bank accounts and the personal bank accounts of the couple. And she actually starts as soon as September 11th, 2001. So even before he's dead, she starts cleaning the bank accounts out. Uh, they had a horse trailer and truck that was worth $115,000. She sells that and banks the money as well. And over the next few months, she liquidates half a million dollars worth of the couple's remaining assets. <laughs> she ends up with that money buying her friend Sarah a bright red BMW, among other things. She buys herself a new car as well. <laughs> and because... Doesn't, doesn't she know she's lost one third of her investment? And- yeah. Yeah. So... Because of the estrangement from his family and all the varying explanations that Alyssa had given to people, there wasn't actually a lot of concern. And, you know, September 11th really, you know, unsettled a lot of people. And, of course, he had issues before. He had come in and out of his professional life, you know, when he's times of high stress. He had alcohol issues. People sort of believed the various stories for a while. But eventually, it was the new employee that Alyssa had hired, Ginger Miller. Oh, that was her daughter. No. So the new employee, Ginger Miller, was the one that gets suspicious and like, why is this guy who's hired me never, ever been at this law firm? Why is this woman who's not even a lawyer running the law firm? So um, she becomes suspicious. And so she's the one on November 30th who hired or files the first missing person report. Hmm. She also was very mistrustful of Alyssa by this time. 
So the police, that's when the police first tried to contact Alyssa. But yeah, she's away competing in horse shows. Okay. Later, McNabney's children, who again have been estranged from him due to Alyssa's involvement, um, they hire a private detective to try and find him, but that doesn't help, um, doesn't work. And so then McNabney's 25-year-old son, Joe, files a second missing person report in January of the following year. So Sacramento police arrive at the couple's home after like in late January 2002 to interview Alyssa Um, and they find that she's left the house basically abandoned the house in her new red Jaguar Uh, she in talking to the neighbors they described that she's just left and hasn't returned it it turns out she was away at another horse show Um, and so what happens is the horse trainer his name's Greg Wallen his wife calls him to say, oh, the police have been at the house. They're looking for Alyssa. He and Alyssa just got home from a horse show and they were in the process of unloading the horses at the time. Mm -hmm. And so he mentions to her, oh, the police were at the house looking for you. And she's like, okay, do you have any money on you? And he pulls out his wallet, 300 bucks. I need that. I'll pay you back. And off she goes and disappears. (laughs) Yes. Person. Um, so the police, like, obviously by this time they're thinking, I think we've got the person we're looking for. We just don't have her. They decide to look deeper into, um, you know, who she is, where she might be. And they find out that this person, Alyssa McNabney, doesn't exist. There is no person. There's no such person. Case solved. Yes. Okay. So then. It never happened. Yeah. The police are searching all sorts of databases. They find other Alyssa McNabneys. Um, they find other Alyssas with the same um, previous maiden name, but it's not the same person. Okay. Um, and so they continue searching and they find a horse trailer that also belonged to them. It was less expensive and it was at the place and it was packed with a lot of her belongings and one of the belongings that they find is an old legal file and so inside this legal file they find it has a label that says Lauren Renee Sims Jordan so they look up this person and they find that Lauren and Alyssa are the same person they find that Alyssa as Lauren um, has a 113-page-long criminal record. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, she is huh. wanted... Unless it's the... really big type, then it's not as impressive. Pardon? I said, unless it's really big type, then it's not as impressive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they find that she is wanted, currently wanted in Florida for credit card theft, grand theft, and parole violations. And she was known to have used 38 different aliases. Hmm. Nice lady. So they look into who she is and they find out that Lauren Renee Sims was the second child of four born to a well-off couple from Massachusetts who had later moved to Florida. Uh, She had attended Hernando High School where she was considered an exceptional student and she was a cheerleader and she had a tested IQ of 140. Wow. However, she had never finished high school. She dropped out. Uh, She got pregnant and married by the time she was 20 she had two children by two different men and had twice been divorced after her divorce from her first husband she had turned to theft and the first time she was picked up by the police it was for stealing a l'oreal hair coloring kit from a woolworth's in tampa (laughs) classy crime Uh, 
Then she was released on those charges, and she later violated her parole by illegally using a credit card. <laughs> later, she cut off her ankle monitor and fled to Las Vegas with her infant daughter, Haley, who we have met already. <laughs> On March 20th, 2002, police in Destin, Florida, receive a tip from some people and they tell the police that Alyssa McNabney is staying with them. Um, the people are friends of Alyssa's 17-year-old daughter, Haley. So Haley and Alyssa are staying with them and I think these people are just like, we don't like this woman, get her out of here. So they report Alyssa to the police. The police arrive at the condo and Alyssa actually answers the door, but then attempts to disguise her voice. Uh, she has also changed her appearance. So she's dropped from a size 10 to a size 3. She's dyed her blonde hair black. They also later find that she had been in consultation with a plastic surgeon in a further attempt to change her appearance. Wow. So initially, and she's also changed her name, so she's got yet another alias. So she's going by the name of Shane... Ivorani. So she denied being McNabney. Okay. She denied being Sims. She denied being Jordan. Any of those people she actually was. Yeah. Um, but it didn't take long, a couple of minutes, and then the police decide that she is, in fact, the person they're looking for. Um, she states, okay, I'm tired of running. She goes with them to the police office, sheriff's office, um, and she writes out a three-page confession. They then arraign her for first-degree murder. So following the confession, the police in California then go to pick up Sarah Dutra, who had been uh, in Italy uh, participating in a foreign exchange student program. <laughs> I kind of feel sorry for her. Anyway, so she... How can we feel sorry for her? Well, I don't know. It sounds like... Obviously, she just shouldn't have done all this stuff, mm -hmm. but sounds like she was a person that was, yeah, having potential and doing the right things and... And then just got led along. Obviously, yeah, she's a bad person. I shouldn't feel sorry for her, but <laughs> I just feel sorry for her. I don't know. If she'd never met this woman, she probably well could have been a functioning member of society. I don't know. Whatever. Okay. Anyway, yeah. so she confirms all the information in the confession yeah. that Alyssa has made. So uh, the initial charges that were being considered against both of them were murder for financial gain, and that could lead to the death penalty. Hmm. Uh, so, but what happens is on Easter Sunday, 2002, Alyssa, who at that time was in the medical unit at the, in jail, she shredded her pillow, braided it, and hanged herself in her Florida jail cell. The police say it was a very well-planned death because she was being checked every 15 minutes. She was on a suicide watch. Oh, wow. um, they were checking on her every 15 minutes, so like she just had everything ready to go. And they t timed it per perfectly. She had also left a letter for her lawyer uh, stating that she killed herself because she did not want her children to have to go through the indignity of seeing her on trial on court TV. <laughs> so she left the suicide note asking her lawyer to sue Hernando County Jail for not preventing her suicide and for that money, uh, any money recovered <laughs> to go to her children. So, wow. Was yeah. this a successful case? No. Uh. No, it was not. Okay. So... The trial. So even though she is now dead and gone, they still have the trial because they have the other suspect. So Alyssa's daughter, Haley, who did have, um, I guess she was involved in a few 
bad things as well that we didn't go into. They were using her basically to go pick up drugs for them. They did get involved in like recreational drug use. And so she was mm-hmm. the person that would go pick up the drugs, etc. Okay. Um, but yeah, she spent her 18th birthday on the witness stand in a Stockton, California courtroom. <laughs> the judge, Bernard J. Garber, he had granted her immunity for her testimony. So that basically left Sarah to face the music alone. Um, her trial, uh, her defense attorney rather, is Kevin Kleino, who also represented the Unabomber. Okay. So prosecutor Thomas Testa, he asked for the maximum sentence at the outcome of the trial. And she was facing life imprisonment without parole if convicted. So the trial was 11 weeks long and she's found guilty of voluntary manslaughter. And the judge sentenced her to 11 years and 8 months, which is the maximum sentence. It showed, or he noted, that she had shown little remorse. Okay. So Sarah then served her time, and on August 26, she's released from the Central California Women's Facility after serving 85% of her sentence. Haley, the daughter, was turned over to Sim's parents. Um, she had been estranged from them for a decade. McNabney, I think he maybe saw the writing on the wall because near the end of his life, he had told a friend, if anything happens to me, tell the cops Alyssa did it. Huh. It turns out he actually never knew his wife's real name. Like he had no idea she yeah, did yeah. this. Yeah. So it said he knew very little about his wife's past, but actually didn't seem to care. Um, and yeah, if they questioned her, she always changed the subject and he just never dealt delved any further into it so yeah. that is the end of that sordid tale that is a sordid tale mm-hmm. hmm. it's kind of a sad story <laughs> after our happy story last time <laughs> yes after our, our upbeat ending last time this one ends in a in a squalid mm-hmm. dismal mess yeah various yeah. people pursuing their own self-destruction yeah for reasons only known to them mm-hmm. yeah it's the essence of true crime sadly this is a question though a couple questions for you one is so how did they discover who this he was? Did they not forget to take the identification out of Larry McNabney's, McNabney's wallet, or like seemed pretty quick. But they discovered who he was pretty pretty mm-hmm. quickly. The police. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, I won't ask these questions then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure if I'd been able to find that info, I would have put it in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I'm just curious because it seems like they discovered it quite quickly. They just have this body, mm-hmm. and then the next thing you know. Yeah, I think um, you know they did have missing persons reports yeah so oh yeah 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 that's identify. true yeah that's true who is missing mm-hmm mm-hmm that's right i forgot about that that's probably a quick way to, to find these things out okay well that was very good dear i mean very interesting i guess mm-hmm. not very good since all those people were very bad to each other <laughs> very horrible yeah but uh thank you for that gripping story of intrigue murder and i don't know what to call Mayhem. it Mayhem, I guess. Yeah, just, I felt like, I don't know, I just felt like everyone was, it's like a film noir in a way, Mm because everyone's sort of pursuing their own destruction. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, there's no positive character in that story. (laughs) Interesting. All right. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed that. I mean, enjoyed it in the sense that it's a story that you listened to, and I hope that you took took a moral from that story. And that moral is, don't give horse sedatives to people. They're no good. I learned that from watching The White Shadow. That guy took PCP once and jumped off the school roof. 
yeah. That's PCP is like an animal sedative, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah, I think. Animal chocolate? I don't know. Anyway, that's the moral I took from that story. So um, if you'd like to write to us, here's how you can do it. We have uh, a website that this show is on called SneakyDragon.com. Sneaky Dragon, of course, is our sister podcast. And if you go to that website, you'll find this episode there and you can leave a comment and tell us what you thought of this episode. And if you have any comments and or questions about it, you're welcome to ask. If you have any questions about uh, anything that comes about horses, Lisa's happy to answer those questions as well. And you can do that there. Or if you're a private person who doesn't want to uh, publicly, um, you know, make public proclamations, you can go to our email, which is sneakyd at sneakydragon.com. And that will, uh, we'll get that and we'll, we'll respond that way if you need us to. And, uh, yeah, there you go. Well, dear, thank you for this episode of Horse Mysteries. What's our next one called? The Wild West. The next one's called The Wild West, everyone. This sounds like it's going to be wild. So we'll see you in two weeks. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Bye.